all these things that are the reasons why we're creating the content and that make it relevant to the world, if we just tag them to the asset at the moment that it's born as a sort of baseline, it interestingly becomes exactly the metadata that people are looking for downstream. That's Eric Fulmer, VP of Operations at Shopflow, talking about creating metadata as part of the production process. Shopflow deals with studios that are creating content at scale for brands and retail. You're listening to the Metadata Matters podcast from Grey Meta. In this podcast series, Grey Meta talks to people working with metadata on a daily basis to understand their perspectives and learn about best practices. In particular, I will focus on how technology like machine learning and AI can help generate, curate and work with that metadata. I'm Matt Eaton, Managing Director of EMEA at Grey Meta, and I thought it would be an interesting exercise to talk to Eric this week to compare and contrast metadata in Shopflow's world of mainly photography for retail brands and metadata in the media and entertainment world. I learned a lot and hopefully you'll find the discussion insightful too. What stood out for me was how metadata plays an important part in delivering quality and optimizing speed to market in both worlds. Here's the interview. Hey, hello, Matt. Appreciate you uh, allowing me to join the podcast. Excited to be here and to talk about metadata. It's great to have you here. And uh, you're, you're based in Atlanta, right? Correct. I'm outside of Atlanta and uh, we have people around our team kind of around the world, but primarily um, US based in terms of our uh, our business and our and our customer base. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so, you know, I'm so glad you can join because, you know, in our conversations um, previously, we've, we've talked about some of the parallels and differences in the sectors that our, our products kind of address. I mean, from Shopflow's point of view, um, you're looking more at the brands and the retail world and content metadata in those areas. Um, and and, and Grey Meta has, has grown out of media and entertainment. And, 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 you know, I've got a lot of experience personally around broadcast. And I thought it would be really interesting to do a bit of a compare and contrast um, around metadata challenges and how different parts of the the industries are, are meeting some of these very similar challenges. Um, so um, without further ado, I think, um, Eric, it would be great if you could just introduce um, Shopflow and, and um, you know, a bit about um, your product and, and, and the kind of challenges that your product's been developed to address. Absolutely. So Shopflow is a, a five-year-old journey um, where we serve as the kind of the, the, the system of record, you could say, or the operating system for studios that create content for brands at scale. And it primarily is, is coming out of photography. That's really the core content type that we start with. Uh, that's imagery is obviously critical for brands historically in many different aspects. And with e-commerce and the rise of e-commerce, imagery, of course, has only become more important. So there are other content types, of course, that you're much more familiar with, like video or, or HTML5 spins that get involved as well. But the core of these studios is to produce images at scale. And we talk about at scale, in many cases, thousands and thousands of images a week for example, sometimes a day. 
because they're supporting a a business, a retail business in which there are new product introductions essentially going on all the time. So there's always new things. And most of this, of this studio structure is to support the introduction of new products into the market. So you can't sell something on a web page unless you have a, an image of it. And that's really kind of the, the workflow that we support. We start all the way up to a season or a launch or a campaign that's driving the need for these products to come to market and the product data, of course, that goes along with that. And we take that all the way through you know, production planning, who's going to do what and where and when and what model are we going to use and what team are we going to use and, and then getting the physical samples. A big part of this is getting a real physical product in your hand that you can shoot or that you can put on a model and having it be the right size and what model are we going to put it on. And it gets really interesting as you get into multiple products like uh, looks or outfits in, in apparel where you need to be able to pair things together. So you have to have all the right pieces of, of product and how they go together and uh, ultimately know that you put that pant with that shirt. So we, we manage all that process across many brands. Uh, so our clients are very large uh, brand uh, organizations. M many of them are multi-brand organizations. So Gap Inc, for example, Williams-Sonoma, Urban Outfitters, are all examples of, of multi-brand clients that have to actually create content across many brands. And again, at a, at a pretty significant scale. Um, and they also many are, times are producing content across the world, right? Their, their physical studio operations may be um, in different cities, in different countries, for different regions. So that's all part of what we do. And, and we kind of stop around the, the point of delivering a final asset, typically to a dam. So we are not a dam vendor. We're not really in the syndication of content business or delivery of content. So we're not really in the last mile business. We're really about starting with the, the triggers that drive the creation of new content and getting you to a final asset in that, you know, again, can be then distributed and, you know, kind of uh, taken to wherever you want it to go through whatever your, your tool set is. Yeah, so that's what yeah. we do. Uh, and the, the problems that we try to solve really, Matt, are a lot of logistical problems long before you actually press a shutter button on a camera and create an asset, right? All the, all the ways that you must coordinate to get to the point where you're in the right place at the right time with the right materials and the right people and the right stuff, and of course the right data to be able to produce that content efficiently and effectively. And uh, then the, again, the post part of that, we do some work with post around making sure that it's retouched, et cetera, we can kind of route it to the right places. So that's kind of the sweet spot of what we do. And believe it or not, um, there haven't been a lot of tools in that space. It's kind of an, an odd space. Um, and we've been very excited to, to lead kind of the, the development in that space of what we call, we can refer to this, by the way, as studio production management is kind of the, the term that we've applied to it in order to help differentiate it from DAM, from PIM, from project management, and other very critical systems of record of which this has really no overlap. It's kind of that production piece that sits in between that kind of ties all that together. Great, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you, you talk about the, um, the importance of the metadata in terms of the production process and, you know, you know making sure that the, the production is, is, is shot as efficiently as possible um, and, is, as, and as full of detail as possible. But I'm guessing that that same metadata 
is also important downstream for omni-channel uh, distribution of, of the content, right? Exactly. And this is what's really kind of so neat about what we discovered about this process when we really looked at it. And I've been working with, with retail brands now for almost 10 years, again, around this kind of problem. What we realized is that if you, for the moment, kind of think about the let's go to the end of the process and say people want to find assets, right? The, the, the whole game, of course, and dam, et cetera, is how do I find assets that are relevant that I want to do things with? When you think about retail, the, the reason that you go look for an asset to find an asset is typically contextual to all the same reasons why we created it, meaning the asset exists as a response to something. We did a spring launch. We wanted to do new products around, and um, you know, the the spring season. And within that, we wanted to highlight these new items that we were launching. And we did a big campaign around that. That is, you know, I don't know, uh, fun at the beach, right? The way you think about that is is you build the idea of why those assets should exist. Those same reasons and all that context of why you're creating it are the same ways that people want to interact with the content later, right? It's like a mirror of itself, right? So when we think about why we, oh wait, I wanna find that asset. Do you remember we did that big campaign that was summer fun? I wanna look for all the assets that were summer fun. Or I wanna look for all the assets that featured that model. Do you remember that model that we used for that, for that big shoot? So the same thing, you have to be able to book a model to get her on set to shoot something is the same reason that someone later may say, that's that's the reason I'm looking for this content. So the idea is that pre-production data, which you don't think of as metadata, right? You don't think of, of product data upstream before there's an asset as metadata, but all these things that are the reasons why we're creating the content and that make it relevant to the world, if we just tag them to the asset at the moment that it's born as a sort of baseline, and then you can always, of course, enrich that metadata with more later. But as a sort of, you know, definition of why we're here and why we're standing here actually doing this work, it interestingly becomes exactly the metadata that people are looking for downstream. And so that's partly what we do is that we just tag all of that to the asset at, at point of creation. And so we call it the concept of smarter assets. The bizarre part of 2021 is that if you think about this moment right now, there are millions of assets being created all over the world in all sorts of, of, of aspects that have basically no metadata at all. And yet they're all being created for some reason, even if you're creating it for stock, right? And you're like, I'm out in the woods, I'm taking pictures in the woods. I, I think the woods are beautiful. You know, beautiful woods is, is some reason somebody would look for that asset later, right? Is that they wanna see beautiful pictures of the woods, right? So everything is built around, there's a context to create content. What we do in our particular niche is essentially apply all that as, as tagged metadata, uh, in our case, using custom XMP schema, the, you know, the international standard uh, to do that. And then that ideally makes that available, of course, to all those downstream tools and channels that need that contextual metadata to drive you know, workflow and search and you know, uh, visual, visualization of assets. Great, yeah, yeah, exactly, and 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 this is you know similarly in terms of uh, Grey Matters Curio, we're using machine learning to generate that uh, that tagging of of the um, of the shots. So you know if it's a woodland scene, uh, you know on a piece of B-roll video, for example, that that's very valuable uh, in the future potentially. Um, so just thinking about some of the, the other parallels, I mean, in in terms, I was. Before um, uh, the uh, this episode, I, I, I noted down some uh, 
some major differences and and things that I thought were 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 kind of in parallel between you know these two different sectors, um, but both very focused on content. I mean, I think I think the the biggest thing to call out. I mean, the biggest difference um, in terms of handling the content is is the size. Um, you know, the video sizes that we're, we're dealing with um, in, in in media entertainment, especially long form are huge um you know terabytes of of, of content um that you're dealing with massive files and 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 with the and i think one thing you know they are the, the technical metadata and the technical way that that content is presented uh and i'll be interested to hear your point on, on this from a kind of brand and retail point of view it, it is getting more complex as well um to preserve the quality uh, that's captured. So if you want to make sure that, you know, a, a piece of content is delivered with uh, in 4K, in high dynamic range, in, um, you know, with Dolby Atmos, there's a lot of things that can, that need to be checked all the way down the, the supply chain to make sure that, you know, the, 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 the the technical side of the, the content is preserved and, and, and delivered uh, as, as, as intended. Are there any parallels there with, with the kinds of shoots that you're doing? I, I think it's, it's a fascinating parallel in that historically, the complaint of the photographer in our industry was that we were losing quality to what we call good enough, the sort of good enough problem that once we're looking at an image on a mobile phone it just doesn't have to be the resolution that historically you would shoot with film and scan right way back when in the old days or that you'd shoot with a very high megapixel camera really expensive digital camera right um you didn't need all that right so uh, there was a complaint again let's say five years ago that e-com was sort of killing the art of, photo of photographing products and making high quality images of course, what's what's happened now in a way is that I think imagery is now more chasing the video world in the sense that people's eyes are becoming much more sophisticated, I think, to dis differentiating high quality video. Like we've, we're all watching a lot of high quality video now. And I think it, it's funny to see, I think in some ways that is actually informing how we need to look at photography as well. So certainly video is becoming, by the way, a, a stronger content type in the mix, right? It used to be, you didn't shoot video of this stuff, you shot imagery of it because you couldn't, to your point, like at scale, you couldn't do it and you didn't have the right lighting. I mean, everything was, was strobe in a studio that does photography, you don't have continuous lighting. You're really not set up to shoot video, right? So you shot stills, right? And that was good enough. But also what's interesting is Fuji just announced, for example, a 100 megapixel camera for $6,000. What's also happening in, in still photography is resolution is going up. A raw single image capture from that, a raw file from that camera is probably a hundred meg, okay, for the raw file, a still one, one frame, right? Now, again, you process out into, into all, all kinds of derivative files that are much smaller, but in a way it's not that different. Again, you, you are dealing with long form video, ridiculous sort of file sizes, but even in our world, it's interesting. We don't, for example, 
require upload of all of those assets into our system to process them in post-production, you can actually keep them locally. We tag them locally. You can shoot them locally. You don't even have to put them in our tool. And the reason we do that is that ultimately that is even the problem of moving files locally to cloud continues to even be an issue for our side as well uh, in imagery. So I would say it's, it's not maybe as different you know, as it could be. Um, and I think a lot of the same principles apply. One of the key principles is don't fix it in post, figure out upfront how to create the highest quality content you can. And I do think the rush online is going to be to better quality content across the board. And I think that'll be true regardless of whether it's a still image or video. Yeah, that is a great point. I mean, when you were talking about good enough, I mean, I think, I think there was maybe a few years ago, there, there was that, that kind of trend towards that, that, that kind of, well, what does it matter? People are going to be watching it on a mobile phone anyway. But, but when you think back and watch a, an SD a, um, video or, you know, something like that from I don't know, even the nineties, I mean, it just looks awful. I mean, it really does. And, um, and I, I think you're right. People are, consumers are more, discerning about quality and I think yeah the quality of the image the quality of the sound is is, is absolutely so important to consumers you might say it was the apple scenario we become much more sophisticated in terms of our experience on what a mobile device should be like what the iPhone did right let's say for mobile devices it's a it's again a quality and a design functionality that I really think there's just sort of this push now the other way to your point i think there was this kind of race to the bottom at one point i kind of feel like we're on our way back up to more of a race to the top in terms of the quality of content again you think super bowl ads etc what people are putting into creating that quality of content uh it matters right um the quality matters and i think that that has always been true in every industry but you go through sort of you know the the back and forth ups and downs of that i i feel like um yeah the consumer is becoming more discerning especially in their in their online experiences now so the second one I wanted to pick up on is is the way that content is consumed. And, and of course, the models have changed Went from tuning into prime time. Remember that at a certain time to watch, a, you know, a, a piece of content that really was a push model. Um, you know, it was all uh, schedule driven, um, you know, in the media and entertainment world. That's that's as with everything else and digitization has moved to a, a pull model. So, you know, and then you've got the paradox of choice, I think that you mentioned, but, but from a, I sit down on a, on a Friday evening, I've got Netflix, I've got Prime, I've got Disney Plus, I've got blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, where, where do I find the content that is most relevant to me? Um, and uh, that, that's, you know, what, that's one of the, the, the kind of challenges I, I think we see in it. And it seemed to pick up on a few things that you mentioned earlier, right? Yeah, I, I agree. It, it's interesting that when you talk about retail today, what you, what you have to recognize that I think exactly parallels that is that the, the brand is only in control of the content in a way up to a certain point in its journey. And where the consumer is, is increasingly interacting with this content is on social media platforms, is on um, non-traditional you know, platforms of every kind. So whether it's social, um, again, you could call Pinterest social, right? But you know, broadly there, in that bucket, you have every kind of way that you might interact with it. 
And most of those platforms are not controlled by the brand anymore. So another way to think of, again, going back again, again to metadata is in the old days, you could say if you were in a classic push model, you controlled the entire distribution model all the way to the, the consumer's eye, right? You know, essentially the delivery model was, was, was self-contained. Um, now what you have is you create content and what you're hoping for is that it goes viral, right? I mean, that's the dream, right? Is that this dress that we that this that we came out with, you know, last spring becomes, you know, and you use influencers to do that. There's lots of ways to do that. But what you almost want is the, for the client to leave your control and to go out into the world, right? And sort of journey around. Again, if you think about metadata, the context of all of the important information should be at that asset level because it's not necessarily sitting on our platform. Our, our actual, let's say, e-commerce platform. But if you want to buy it, you want to be able to get back to it from wherever that, whatever platform it's on right now, right? So in the same sense, people will discover your content different ways than they ever have. And the way to make your, your content more discoverable is to make it smarter by, by enriching it, right? So it's, a, it's something that honestly is still very new to retailers to even think about knowing that they've come from that brick and mortar world. And, and no matter how much we talk about a digital first world, it's still new to them. COVID frankly was the biggest accelerator ever in retail to say you're, you were behind before now you're five years behind where you were because COVID accelerated sort of that, that e-commerce world or that digital first world by five years as, as a reasonable estimate. So now what we're getting is a recognition that when you create content, you need to prepare it, right, to sort of travel out in the world and to be discovered, you know, outside of your control. And I think that's similar again to the video world as well. And I, I think that 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 kind of leads on to my third point, which was around a general topic of repurposing. And you know, we we get involved a lot around repurposing content, either for different markets, so localizing content. And, and increasingly, you know, back to your, you know, use of repurposing uh, that, that that same content again and again, and, and, and the long lifespan of the content, um, we're finding that, you know, content owners want to uh, make that same content available for different purposes. So we're working with a, a public broadcaster around um, uh, looking at how they can, you know, moments in their content where they could use that for educational purposes rather than just entertainment. Um, and in order to do that as well, you, you need a very good understanding of what's in every frame of that, that piece of content. I mean, what was the character? What are they saying? What, you know, what's the sentiment going on? And, um, but, you know, by being able to reuse that same content, they are able to save a lot of money and time to market, um, you know, without having to shoot a whole new, um, um, you know, production again. Um, so that that's another theme. And I think it's a similar need, but what we're, what you're trying to do again, in if you think of our game more of the sprint than the marathon, right? In your case, the, there's content that that could be usable for many years to come, right? Again, if you think about it educationally, let's say if you go and shoot a you know a document a documentary of of you know some kind of thing, some kind of event that that has a long shelf life to your point, and it can have lots of ways it can be used. The the game here is more 
knowing again that let's say the product life cycles are typically fairly short, that the application is typically for a selling of the product and it probably has a sunset of a lifespan, meaning we're probably going to not sell this product forever. The, the issue here is shoot it once, create the content once and distribute it everywhere, right? So in, in other words, it's more of an upfront challenge too, to say, are we gonna sell this in Asia? Are we going to sell this in Europe? Are we going to sell this in, let's say, the US market, just as an example? So many of our brands are international. And of course, again, if you're going to create a product, you want to create as much opportunity and market for it as possible. So if we're going to shoot it for those markets, again, create content for it for those markets. To your point, are we going to style it differently for Europe than we style it for Asia, than we style it for the US? Absolutely, in most cases, right? So now we have to say, in order to get coverage, if you think about a video term. So for coverage, right, of this product, we need to shoot it these different ways. We need to style it these different ways. But that actually speaks to that upfront process in our case, because you need to plan better. You need to know that you're going to do that. You need to know that you have samples in the right sizes for the models that you're going to use that represent the different channels of distribution that you're going to put the product in, right? So are we going to, are we going to um, again, picture this um, and image it with a model that represents, let's say, the market, you know, that we want to serve. And again, there's all the technical metadata and language, you know, language stuff and translation is honestly not rocket science, right? I mean, to, to get that part done. But to your point, more of the, in a way, instead of trying to extract out what you're doing when the content's already created, it's how do we plan correctly to create the right content, again, fast, and get it into those markets fast while this, while this product still has you know, life in the world. So it's just a different, you know, way of thinking about in a way, the same problem. Great. I mean, there, there are so many other areas we could, we could go down and, and, and discuss, because I think there's a lot of parallels. I would say one of the, one of the things that is a, is a much bigger challenge when you work with production teams that you wouldn't expect is how different a production team that came from photography is from a production team that comes from video. And right. the idea that you can just cross over either one, hey, video guys, go shoot some still images of this stuff you know, for our website, or let's pull frames. The classic is like, we'll just pull a frame out of that. And we're gonna use that for our still so we don't have to separately shoot stills, right? It's, it doesn't work actually. Like if you really look at it in the real world, it's not really, it's not really workable for a bunch of reasons today. Now you flip around the other side too, you take a bunch of people that know photography really well, but they don't really know the video world and just tell them, go shoot some video of this, like a quick turn of the model spinning around. There are some interesting ways that this is happening where you're really truly getting a kind of hybrid production model where you can kind of do both on the same set, but it's far less common than you might think in 2021. And again, it has to do with lots of reasons, you know, creatively, technically, et cetera. But where one of the things we are seeing um, by the way, that, that I'm very excited about in our space is these machines that are more of a packaged set with lighting built into it, with cameras built into it, in which you can sort of tell it, I want a, a front image, I want a back image, I want a video, and it'll pull all of that, it'll shoot all of it, it'll light it properly, it'll even knock out the background for you if you want kind of a silhouette, so you want a clipping path of it. There's a lot of cool things that are coming from kind of moving forward from the old classic, a set is a bunch of people wandering around, picking up lights and, you know, putting them on stands and like figuring out, you know what I mean? Like in our world, it's more production oriented. There's some really interesting ways that we're accelerating with those kind of tools, you know, how you can create more of a, let's say multi-content 
kind of workflow from one, let's call it one set. So some, some of that stuff is going to change it, but it's been much slower to change than someone who's, who's not involved in this production would probably guess. Um, it's been, been a very slow mix between photography and video. That's fascinating. Yeah, no, that's a, and you know, I think, we, I think we've got enough content here for a, a few more podcast episodes. <laughs> it's, uh, always welcome to come. Always glad to come back. No, it, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, just, just looking at these different aspects and, and just comparing the two, uh, you know, video with, with, with photography. Um, but uh, you know, what resonated for me, I mean, I think, you know the, the importance of metadata capturing it early in in the production process and then reusing it later on i mean this will you know the the importance of metadata to save time and costs in terms of production um making it as efficient as possible but also creating new ways to engage that uh, consumer downstream with better curated experiences and I'm guessing, you know, different ways of monetizing content. And, um, you know, I, so I, I think, I think there, there, there's some real, real parallels there. Um, but um, uh, Eric Fulmer from ShopFlow, thank you so much for um, taking the time to be um, part of the Metadata Matters podcast. Absolutely, Matt. It's very, very enjoyable. Again, maybe we can revisit in the future and see where this is all going. But it's exciting to cross over these two worlds and to your point, compare and contrast. And uh, I think in the end, quality matters, right? And, and metadata has become an aspect of quality for content and speed to market matters, right? Certainly in everyone's market these days. So those, those big parallels are going to drive everyone to be more efficient, to use better tools. And I think all of us in the tools business are excited about connecting our tools together and trying to make more of, a, of an end-to-end -end workflow so that this can be accelerated because time to market, you know, there's nobody that isn't pushing hard on that one. Thank you. You can subscribe to the Metadata Matters podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you'd like to find out more about generating enriched time-specific metadata or GreyMeta's Curio platform, visit greymeta.com or email me at metadatamatters, one word, at greymeta.com. See you next time.